Thank you very much, Reba. Good morning to all of you. My name is Jess. I'm one of the leaders here. It's my privilege to open um, Hebrews 11 with you. So if you've got a Bible, do please keep it open. We'll be referring to it throughout. Let me just get some more stuff. Okay, well, <clears throat> a number of years ago, 2012, I figured out where it was yesterday, myself and another elder of this church, Adam Collins, did the uh, Manchester 10K run in the city centre. Now, for some of you, I know we've got a number of runners in this church, and 10K is like a warm-up for you, okay? <laughs> but, you know, for me, it was a big deal. I'd never run 10K before, and, you know, with all the ceremony and being around and running lots of runners, it, it felt like a big deal. Okay, it felt like a big deal. And I ran and I enjoyed it and I managed to cross the finishing line. Um, and I noticed that as you do these sorts of running events, there are various measures that are in place to help encourage you to spend one, right? So halfway through um, the race, there's a table with little plastic cups of water that you can put to drink or just pour on your head. Um, they might give you these sugary gels that you can take that will give you a kind of burst of energy as you're running. Um, but one of the coolest things was that there were, there were groups of people who were there to cheer for you as you're running. So, um, if, if, particularly if you run for a charity, you'll have a jersey with the charity's name on. And the different charities will have people at different stations along the race. And if they see you wearing a shirt and supporting the same charity, they'll start cheering at you, you can run past them, they'll give you high fives. It's really quite fun. Now, why are all those measures there? They are there because running can be hard work. And we need an encouragement and energy to keep going. And this chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, serves a similar purpose. It's there to give us energy to keep going in the Christian life. We're drawing near to the end of the letter of Hebrews now. And the writer has been um, writing to Jewish Christians and has been encouraging them that Jesus is better than any alternative that they may find elsewhere. He's better than angels, he's better than Moses, he's the better high priest, he's the better sacrifice. And the call for these Christians, the reason the writer is saying these things, he's calling these Christians not to turn away from Jesus. Don't turn back to a Christless Judaism or any other thing where Jesus is not central. Jesus must always be at the centre. So he's encouraging them to keep going in the faith. And, and this concern drives this chapter as well. So Hebrews 11 is a much-loved chapter of the Bible. It's known as a famous faith chapter. And the writer calls on all sorts of different biblical characters from the past in history who show us what faith is and what it looks like to put faith into action. Now, we may be very familiar with this chapter, but there is a reason why this chapter has been written. There is a context and it's to encourage the Jews to keep going. If you look back at chapter 10, just at the end of chapter 10, you see this, verse 36, the writer says this, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Or at the end of verse 38, a couple of verses later, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And it's then that the writer brings up all these examples of the past and faithful heroes of the Old Testament. So the writer wants his readers to persevere, to keep going. 
So you could consider this chapter kind of like spiritual Lucasade, or you know, a spiritual glass of water along the race to give you a burst of energy and to keep you going. And we need that, don't we? Many of you will know friends and family who were once living the Christian life and are not doing so anymore. Friends from school, perhaps university, youth group that you were part of, who are no longer following Jesus. And the Christian life is hard for us, and we may be tempted to pack it all in sometimes. And so as we look at this chapter, we need to let it equip us and energize us to keep going, to press forward. We need to be encouraged. We need this chapter. So it's a blessing we're going to look at it over two weeks. And first this week, verses 1 to 22. Okay, so it teaches us about faith. That's a central theme of the chapter. So what does it teach us about faith? Well, firstly, it teaches us this. Faith believes without seeing. It believes without seeing. The chapter begins in verses 1 to 2 with a definition of faith. See what the definition is? Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now, this is not meant to be an exhaustive definition. The writer's not trying to tell us everything we need to know, possibly, about faith. He's emphasizing what is relevant to his hearers. And there are lots of misunderstandings about what Christian faith looks like and what it is. So some would pit it against reason. So some would say that um, faith is belief in the absence of evidence, if they were going to be particularly uncharitable. Faith is considered irrational by some, that it's unthinking. Others think that faith is not necessarily that negative, but it's a characteristic of somebody who you know, likes to see the best in people. A glass half full kind of person. The sort of person who will believe the best, even when they're in negative circumstances. But Christian faith is neither of these things. <clears throat> it's not unreasonable. You don't need to leave your brain at the door if you're going to be a Christian. But neither is it a general sense of just believing the best whatever happens. To put it most simply, you could say this. Biblical faith is taking God at his word. It's trusting what he says. It describes that verse 1 to confidence in what we hope for. We, we hope because of what God has told us in his word the Bible, and it's having confidence in finding rest and believing in those things. Now, biblical faith is not set against reason. We've said that. It's not irrational. But it is set against sight. It involves, verse 1, assurance about what we do not see. Faith believes what is seeing. And the examples that the writer pulls up in this chapter show us that again and again and again. This not being able to see is a major theme. It starts with creation, which we could not see. And it was made out of things that were not seen. And then moving on, the writer uses the examples of um, godly people who believed and then acted, even though they did not see in front of their eyes what they were hoping for. So look down in verse 7, look at Noah. 
You may know the story of Noah and the ark. It says, verse 7, by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Now Noah was warned about the coming flood, a flood of which you know, there's never been before in history. A flood that was going to wipe out everything. And so Noah was told to build an ark. Now, this was not a small boat. If you take the measurements um, in Genesis, which related to this ark, and, and people have actually recreated the ark um, over in the States, we, we reckon it's about as long as one and a half football pitches. Okay, that's the size of the ark. Now, that means two things. It means, firstly, it's going to take a while to build. It also means it's probably going to get attention. So you can imagine Noah is building this ark, and people must have thought he was mad. They must have thought he was crazy. Why are you expecting this flood to come? There's never been a flood before. What are you putting all this effort and energy into building this huge ark? And you know what? You can probably imagine, we're not told this, but maybe Noah had days when he's you know, hammering in another plank, feels like this job is never going to get done. And he's like, why am I doing this? Now, we don't know if we thought that or not. But what we do know is, despite the big job, he persisted. He believed what God had said. He acted. And he was proved right before he did come. Now, notice his faith converted into action. He didn't just think and then not do anything about it. He believed and therefore he obeyed. He listened to what God had said and acted in accordance with it. And it's not just Noah we see throughout uh, this passage. There's Abraham, for example, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. God called Abraham from his own country. He said he was going to give Abraham a land, and Abraham left, but he didn't know where he was going. He couldn't see the land. There was nothing he could put into his satnav. He just had to set out. But he believed God and he obeyed. Verse 11 and 12, again, Abraham and Sarah, they couldn't see how they would have children. They were old and infertile, yet they trusted and they received children. And perhaps most dramatically, even as they received their, their son Isaac, verse 17, by faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Isaac was the promised son that God had said Abraham would receive. He received him. He was the one through whose life Abraham would have many descendants. And yet God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And we're told that Abraham even reasoned that God might bring Isaac back from the dead, which is amazing trust. And so Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. But he didn't know exactly what was going to happen. He couldn't see it. But he acted in faith and obeyed. Faith believes without seeing. Why was this important, this belief without seeing? Well, for the original hearers or readers of this letter, they were Hebrew Christians and they were a persecuted minority. So Christianity, when this was written, was not as established as it is today. It's not as plausible. It wasn't one of the big five faiths. Christians were seen as a dangerous cult. Jewish Christians were seen as um, heretics 
people who have abandoned the faith of their forefathers. And it's clear that these people suffered for it. Back in chapter 10, it says that they received public insults. Even their property is confiscated. So if you're one of these Jewish Christians in the first century, you're part of a small group, you're persecuted, you're also seeing people leaving your community and, and leaving Jesus and going back to mainstream Judaism. You may not have seen much that encouraged you. The faith would look pretty weak. And the same may be true for us today. We haven't seen Jesus visibly, have we? We haven't seen the fulfillment of our hopes. Heaven, which is promised for us, the Bible says. What is it that we have seen? Well, we've seen our own weakness. We've seen our own suffering. Our felt experiences of physical, emotional, and mental pain. We've seen those. We've seen that there are a heck of a lot of people out there who do not believe what we believe. And we've seen that in many cases they seem to live a happier life than we do. We've seen that if we want to obey God, sometimes that is very hard. And we've seen that even in the church, people can hurt each other. What we see isn't always particularly encouraging, is it? Hebrews 11 says this, friends, look to your forefathers. They didn't have full visibility on what God had promised either, but they kept going. They believed. So let them encourage you. Keep going, keep trusting and obeying Jesus. Faith believes and acts without seeing. Secondly, faith seeks a better home. One of the main metaphors or images that comes through this passage, verses 1 to 22, is um, the image of a land or a country or a city. In other words, a home. And the Christian life is one where Christians are journeying home. We're on a journey. We've not reached our destination yet, but we're on our way home. And in this passage, it gives us two aspects of this journey. The first is this. We have to acknowledge that this life, this world, is not our home. Let's read verses 8 and 9. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in a promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. This is really interesting. God has promised Abraham a land, the land of Canaan, which would become the land of Israel. That was for him, that was for his sons, Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and his descendants. <coughs> Abraham left his home, he got to Canaan. He got there. But the text says that when he got to the, the very land he was promised, he lived there, verse 9, as if it was a foreign country. Notice he didn't build a house. He didn't put his roots down. He and Isaac and Jacob, it says, lived in tents. Think about that, tents. Tents are not permanent housing. We see horrible images often of refugee camps where people have been displaced from their home and have to live in tents in a temporary um, living situation. 
Even in Manchester, you'll see that some homeless people in certain areas have been able to, to live in tents. It's probably the best shelter they're able to get if they don't access services. But if you're in a tent, it means that you're on the move. If you're in a tent, it means you haven't come to the final place where you can rest and call home. And you see, Abraham lived in a tent in Canaan. Even the promised land was not his ultimate home. And it says that Abraham knew that. And so in the same way, we as Christians should not count this world as home. We are, as it were, to live in tents. What does that mean? We don't belong here on this earth, in this world as it is. Don't get me wrong. We must care about people in this world. We care and serve others. We do invest time and energy into our communities, into our work, into our city. We don't isolate ourselves off from others as Christians. But we don't seek fulfillment here. We're not going to put our foundations here, rest all our hopes and dreams on the things of this life. We're exiles, we're passing through. Passing through. Look at verses 13 to 16. They, they comment further on these years of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says, verse 13, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. So it's not just that they were on the move. They considered themselves foreigners, strangers in this world. And it's interesting, isn't it? When you live in another culture, it can feel strange and different. We've got a number of internationals in our church, which we love. It's an absolute delight to have you. And it's great that you come from very far, in various, uh, yet various places, and you come to be with us. Now, I do want to ask you, if you're an international, how many of you have ever felt or come across things that British people do that are weird? <laughs> Put your hands up. Some of you are honest, some of you are really good liars. <laughs> okay? Because some of the things we do are weird, aren't they? I've got a Czech friend, Teresa, she went to live in Scotland from the Czech Republic. And uh, she went to church one morning and she met someone, and this person said to her, How are you doing? And oh, Teresa, she made the fatal flaw, rookie error. She answered the question honestly. <laughs> Unbelievable. She, she said, Oh, well, I'm not actually feeling that great. I've had a horrible week. Blah, 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 blah. She just, sort of just spoke about the things that were on her heart. The person she was speaking to was like, Because <laughs> you don't do that again, do you? The protocol goes like this How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Move on. That's how it works. Like, that's the protocol. And isn't that weird? Isn't that strange that British people would do that? It is odd, isn't it? But this is it, culture shock, differences in how we understand life and world, different values. And when you have instances of culture shock, you feel disconnected from the people you're in, you're in. And the truth is that is true for all Christians in this world as well. We can find living in this world an alienating experience. We find that we can't always connect with non-Christians, though we love them. We don't value the things they value. And so let me just say at this point, if you find this world wearisome at the moment, that's probably healthy. 
It's a good thing. And actually the danger is that we as Christians count this home, count this world as home. We put too much expectation on it. We put down our roots and foundations. We don't live in tents. We actually seek the values of this world too much. So we don't acknowledge that we acknowledge that this world is our home, but also we long for our true home. Why was it that Abraham could live in tents? Even in the promised land that God had given him. Look at verse 10. Because he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Or as verse 16 puts it, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. We don't put our roots down here because we are looking forward to a better country, a heavenly country, the new creation. There's this fascinating little phrase, a couple of phrases, in verse 13. Look down with me. Firstly, it says that all these people were still living by faith when they died. That's Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob. They did not receive the things they promised. Do you see that? They died without receiving what was promised to them. They didn't receive them in this life. But it says that they saw them, that is the promises, and welcomed them from a distance. Now, I just think there's something tantalizing about that. We've already learned that faith is opposed to sight. And in another sense, these forefathers, they did see what was to come. And not only did they see them, they welcomed them. Isn't that interesting? You know, normally you welcome someone, or you welcome something, when you've received them into your presence. If someone comes to your home, you welcome them, you give them a hug. Or you might get to meet them at the airport. It's when you receive them that you welcome them. It's hard for me to welcome you when there's distance between us. But for these people, our forefathers, they welcomed what they had not yet received. It's like they embraced this future country with open arms, even though they hadn't received it yet. It was that real to them. It's like they could taste it. And friends, we need to do that as Christians if we're to keep going. How easy it is in the mess and the distractions of life to not think about where we're going. A heavenly country, a city whose architect and builder is God. Now don't be fooled by the word heavenly. Okay, we're not talking immaterial here and floating like spirits, playing harps on clouds, whatever. We're talking about a renewed planet Earth. When Jesus will return and usher in the new creation, it will be physical, tactile, tangible, material. And think of all the promises that God gives in the Bible about what that world will be. Free of pain. You won't get anxious anymore in that world. You won't be self-conscious anymore, always worrying what people think about you. Your body will not hurt. You won't feel disconnected from your surroundings or from the people who are around you. All your relationships will be transparent and free and loving without any distrust, without any shame. I think that city image is evocative. You know, at their best, cities are great, aren't they? In the ancient world, a city was a place of safety. And, and cities are full of people that teem with life. 
They're hubs of activity and culture and art and science. Now, you might not be a city person, this might not be attractive to you, but the writer of Hebrews would say, well, that's because you've not been to the right city yet. Because this city is built by God. Verse 10. He's the builder and the designer. He made the blueprints, he planned the grid system, and he's operating the cranes, putting the girders in place, building this huge city. And it is God who is going to be at the centre of the city. Every skyscraper that's in it, every bus stop, every park bench will reveal something of God's greatness and will point to him. And life in the city will revolve around the enjoyment and worship of the Lord Jesus. Just think of it, a city where we will know the one who made us fully, we'll be able to see his face, worship him together. Joy and satisfaction will come from being there. And there's this other lovely detail, let's look at verse 16. God is preparing this city for his people. Isn't that mad? We're God's creatures. We should be making him a city. And yet he is the one rolling in his sleeves, preparing this place for his people. He wants us to enjoy it and he wants us to enjoy him. That's where we're heading. Now our forefathers, they, they saw this, not with their physical eyes, but with the eyes of faith. They longed for it in their hearts. They welcomed it as if they'd already received it, because they knew it was going to come, and that's what kept them going. And that is what, that's what's going to keep us going. We don't, live in, we, we don't um, set our foundations here in this life. We are strangers, we are passing through. But where we're heading is glorious, so we must keep going. Faith seeks a better hand. Finally, this thing, this passage teaches us faith pleases God. Look down again at verse 2. The passage says that faith was what, our, what the ancients were commended for. To be commended is to be approved of. This example of Abel in verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain. By faith, he was commended as righteous. When God spoke well of his offerings, you know the story Cain and Abel, they both bring sacrifices, but only Abel was accepted. Hebrews tells us why he offered it with faith in a way that Cain did not. And this pleased God. Even more crystal clear is the example of Enoch. Look at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken away. And before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. Enoch was a man who pleased God. And verse 6 drives that point home further. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So you're not going to have faith unless you believe that God exists and that he will bless you if you come to him. Based on what he has said, it's trusting his word. But if we show this faith, like Enoch, it brings God joy, it pleases God. Now I can imagine that some of us reading a chapter like Hebrews 11 is a bit disheartening. Because you read about all these people and all their faith, and you see it and you think, you know, this is not me. It's not me. I'm not a hero of faith like these guys. 
man, I don't think I would have left my country if I was Abraham. I would have been too scared. I would have stayed at home. I definitely would have gone with God if I didn't know where I was going. I mean, I don't even obey God in the little things of life. What about a huge thing like that? I, I'm not sure if I would have done it. And my faith is a lot weaker than Noah's. Man, if I was Noah, I'd probably packed up the living ark halfway through. And then ended up being washed away with everyone else in the flood. And so, as I, you know, we, we, think, we read this chapter and we think, well, if this is the sort of faith that pleases God, then do I please God? Can I please God? Because my faith is pretty weak most of the time. But the thing about faith is that it is not the amount of it, ultimately, that matters. And we get a hint of this even in the passage itself. I mean, sure, Noah built the ark. It's pretty impressive. Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac. That's, that's amazing. Okay. But in the same list, we have Abel, who, what? What, what did Abel do? He put on a barbecue? <laughs> it's not in the same league, is it? Does it take more faith to offer up a cow or to offer up your own son as a sacrifice? There's a disparity, isn't it? They're not balanced. It's not the same thing. And yet, both Abraham and Abel please God. They are commended. You see, it's not the amount of faith that matters. It is what we put our faith in. It is faith's object. Okay, think about flying. Let's imagine I've got this hair-brained idea that um, I want to cross the channel by holding on to a drone. And someone's going to, you know, Remote control drone, I'm going to hold it really tight, and I'm pretty sure that this drone is going to carry my weight across the channel. Okay, however much faith I have in that, it doesn't really matter, does it? The drone's not going to be strong enough. I'm going to fall over and hurt myself, to say the least. Now imagine I have a fear of flying. I'm due to fly to Paris on a jumbo jet, and I manage to get myself on the plane, but as it starts to leave the runway, and takes off, I'm thinking, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I stress out. I think the worst is going to happen. My faith is really small. It's barely enough to get me on the plane itself. But will I get to Paris? Yes, I will. Because it's the plane and the pilot that are dependable, not my faith. What matters is not the amount of faith that I have. It's what I put my faith in. It's the object. Remember, Hebrews 11 does not come out of nowhere. It's come out of 10 chapters where the writer said, look at Jesus. He's amazing. Put your trust in Jesus. And so if you trust in Jesus, however false your faith will be, you will be accepted. The truth is that pleasing God is remarkably easy. You know, some of us have had fathers where we feel like we'll never be able to please them. They've set the standards too high for us. It's, it's a crushing burden. Our Heavenly Father is not like that. All we need to do is what Enoch did, verse 6. We come to him. We come to him. We trust what he says is true. And we believe that he offers this heavenly city for us. And we receive it. In verse 17, we're reminded that Abraham was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And we know that God did not let Isaac die in the end. 
Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son. But our Heavenly Father did sacrifice his son. He gave up the Lord Jesus to be murdered, to be tortured, to die, to bear our sins on his head so that we might be saved. And Jesus was raised from the dead as Saviour and Lord over all. And this changes the way we think about faith and about this chapter. Hebrews 11 is not pressuring us to become spiritual superheroes like Noah and Abraham. And the truth is, even Noah and Abraham weren't all that. I mean, if you read the stories in Genesis, it's like something out of Jeremy Carl's show, it's not to be great. They fall in many ways. But the truth is, our Heavenly Father has given us His Son. And what pleases God most is when we come to Him. Even in weakness, in faltering faith, when we say, Lord, I, I, I believe in Jesus, but help my unbelief. My, my faith is so poor, I need your help. Please help me. That is the sort of prayer that the Lord delights in. Because its object is in Jesus, not because it's particularly strong. The truth is, God delights to help his people. Psalm 81, verses 10, says this. This is God speaking. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. That's what God offers to us. We, we just come to him with open mouths, and he will feed us. You can please God. And you don't have to be some amazing Christian. The bar is actually pretty low. Just believe what he says about Jesus and come to him and ask for help. Yes, faith will lead to obedience. In time, even radical obedience. But what comes first is that we trust in Jesus, we come and believe in him, and our faith is encouraged and rewarded in the end. And so this chapter is like spiritual Luke's aid. It keeps us going. Are you struggling in your Christian life? Are you feeling like you're faltering? Are you burdened by pain and suffering and struggling? This chapter says, look to your forefathers. They didn't see much that encouraged them necessarily, but they knew that they could, could keep going, knowing that what they had wasn't visible to them at the moment. And yet they could see, they could see the eyes of faith, that heavenly city of the and for those of us that trust in Jesus, however small our faith, we can please God. We can please God. And maybe that's enough of a word for us this morning that will encourage us to keep going. Let's pray. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Lord God, we confess. We have not felt the confidence that we wish we had. We look at ourselves and we look at the world around us and see lots that is discouraging. But Father, we thank you that you've given us the Lord Jesus. And it's not the amount of our faith that saves us, it's the object. Lord, thank you that you are willing to feed those who come to you hungry. And Lord, for us this morning, many of us, I'm sure, will be struggling with the burdens of life. Some of us may even be thinking about just leaving the Christian faith altogether. Lord, help us to keep going this morning. Help us to see how good our heart is 
We just need to come empty to Christ. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you that you are with us to us. You are our high priest. We ask for your help.